0: Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I am joined by guest Jeff Doolittle. Jeff, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. Uh, To get started, would you tell the folks a little bit about who you are and what you do for some context?
1: Sure, I'm currently working for a company called Trimble Viewpoint, which is a company that does software for construction companies. So imagine you're trying to build a freeway overpass or a large stadium then you're going to use uh, our enterprise resource planning software to manage every aspect of that process, whether it's materials procurement, labor tracking and management, permitting, every aspect of the construction process. Uh, Essentially, it's large project management software. And I've been doing that for about three years. Uh, Prior to that, I started in the mid-90s, basically building websites and getting paid with things like software and computers. (laughs) (laughs) And... Eventually decided that uh, this is something I wanted to do for a living. So I got hired uh, by a friend to do some software for a juice company, actually. And uh, we sort of built from the ground up a system for them to track their inventory, their raw materials purchasing, production planning, inventory management, and sales and shipping and you name it. And so sort of cut my teeth with that in a consultancy and it turned out i was good enough at it that within a few years they made me the cto of that consultancy in the early 2000s and did that for a while a few years later we realized that maybe we should take a stab at doing some uh, startups because we were starting to build the same solution over and over again as independent consultants and so uh, we took a stab in the late 2000s at that and i can share more about that if if you're interested and if it's useful to your listeners but essentially spent You know, a few years doing my own, my own thing here and there. Like I said, getting paid in free beer and and software and computers, and then uh, did about a decade of software consultancy, and then about a decade of startups, and then spent the last few years, as I said, uh, here at Trimble.
0: That's wild. When you said way back in the '90s, I was like, but that was just five years ago. Doesn't it feel like it? Yeah, it does. So it's funny we have a very different path, but there's some certain similarities for mm. sure. So if you could, uh, I'm curious about the the CTO of the consultancy thing. If we could drill into that particular portion of the timeline, it'd be really interesting. That'll align, I think, uh, with what a lot of people are doing yeah. in the audience. So if you, so maybe just drill a, a layer deeper into how that came about and and what kind of consultancy was it at the time? Was it sort of generalist or was it digital transformation or? A, you know, was it before that?
1: So this was very market specific, which I think, um, you know, back in the nineties, that was maybe more common than it is now because the internet was not nearly as ubiquitous as it is now. You know, it's easy to forget the, the iPhone came out 15 years ago. And prior to that, there really just weren't smartphones. I mean, there were a few, you know, Microsoft phones that were pocket PC, but they there were nothing compared yeah. to Palm pilot. You know, Yeah, exactly. And now we have literal supercomputers that we carry around. I mean, I have a supercomputer on my wrist now. Like, it's insane. So it was pretty different in the 90s. And so uh, I was located in Central California. And in a lot of ways, the industries that I worked for adopted me because it was mostly agriculture, food processing, and then healthcare and government, which are pretty ubiquitous. And so most of the consulting that I did was basically creating gap-filling solutions for companies that maybe had, say, a large ERP, like SAP, JD Edwards, Ross Systems, this sort of thing, Microsoft Dynamics, but it didn't solve for a lot of their supply chain oriented problems was kind of a common one that we would deal with. So maybe we'd deal with some things, but then they said, Hey, we want to have some mobile application for managing our warehouse or for doing order fulfillment or these kinds of things, or some kind of reporting aggregation system that was going to bring disparate data together from various systems. And so we would kind of come in and, you know, bridge the gap and also did a lot of, uh, Smaller systems for companies that maybe just needed a soup-to-nut system, but a lot of what we did too was was those integrations of large systems and sort of, like I said, filling in those gaps where any big system is going to do eighty percent of what you need, and then you need somebody to come in and help with the twenty percent that it's not going to help with.
0: Okay, and was the what would the consultancy have considered itself like? How were they positioned as a like as a software integrator or?
1: Basically, it was literally pitched as a boutique software consultancy. So yeah, we'd come in and we would do software development, but we would also do the system design. And so that was kind of an additional value add was you can bring in hired gun programmers but a lot of times they're just going to write a bunch of code but what if it's the wrong code or what if it's not maintainable these sorts of things so we brought in a broader perspective and and also i mean i was actually a business major i was not a computer science major so in some ways i kind of oopsed my way into software my my uh business partner he was actually the computer science major but i was so good at the computer stuff and he was so good at the business stuff that we sort of flipped roles and he became the ceo and i became the CTO. And we kind of rolled that way for a couple decades.
0: Mm. Did you have like a platform specialty, you know, SAP or like some language, you know, what would have been Java or something?
1: Yeah, well, so back in the early, early days, it was, you know, plain old HTML, CSS and JavaScript. And I, I tried a bunch of different things. And interestingly, our region sort of selected for us as well. We had a lot of Microsoft people that were just It was sort of that, you know, they used to say you'd never get fired for choosing IBM. So back in the mid-90s, where we lived, this wasn't true everywhere, but where we were located, it was sort of a nobody ever got fired for choosing Microsoft. And we evaluated Java at the time and spent some time kind of comparing, you know, uh, the two. Uh, But really, it turned out that C Sharp and .NET was really the way to go for us, which ironically was not a big thing that I was a fan of because I was not a Microsoft fan in the 90s or the 2000s. It's a very different company now in many ways, and it's changed in ways I never expected it to change. No kidding, yeah. I think the old Microsoft is still there, and it's still very powerful. I feel like there's two Microsofts now. There's the the open source, developer-friendly, we don't want to squish you, Microsoft. But the old, we're going to stamp you out if we can, Microsoft, is still there. So it's sort of <laughs> like there's this dual personality Uh, But it's definitely a much better time to be a Microsoft developer now than it was even 20 years ago when we were first making those kinds of decisions.
0: Yeah, no kidding. I've been out of the dev game for a while now, at least five or 10 years. And I was blown away when VS Code appeared to take over the world. Like all of my dev friends were like, oh, we use VS Code. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. But yeah, it's great. It's, It's like, wow, it's pretty good.
1: Well, and then they open sourced their entire .NET framework, which was absolutely shocking. And it's kind of ironic. You know, you have Java, which Java originally was intended to be a a single uh, language that would run everywhere with a single runtime and very open. And then you had .NET, which was meant to be multi-language, but it only ran on Windows. Now we live in a completely different world where Oracle owns everything Java but it has multiple languages, but you're kind of stuck, and and it's becoming more. It feels to me like it's becoming more and more kind of closed off because you got to you know pay the Oracle tax. And I know there's an Open JDK, and you know the listeners can can try to educate me more on that. Uh, but you know I know it's not just that. But it's ironic that now the Microsoft ecosystem is single language, but it runs everywhere and it's open. It's really strange.
0: <laughs> yeah, it does. It feels dramatic. So cool. So back at that at the time when when uh, you were starting that consultancy, it was sort of C sharp.net was your, what you're doing, but talk a little bit more about the architecture piece, you know, making sure that you're writing the correct code, you know, your business major, but somehow you became good at software architecture. What was that transition
1: like? Well, I will say it was very painful <laughs> and it was really painful because a lot of it was happening in the mid two thousands. And Essentially, transitioning from a lot of client-server applications to the early cloud days was really challenging. And a lot of the guidance in those days, turns out, was incredibly misguided. You know, People are still talking about microservices, but like everything else, there's microservices and there are microservices. And most of them are terrible. Most of them are far too granular. They're not properly decomposed. They don't really follow good principles of design. And in fact, I still run into people who, whether they would admit it or not, they feel like software is its own thing and that fundamental principles of good design that might apply in the real world don't apply in software land. And going back to those early days, in many ways, I think I was one of those people, mostly out of ignorance rather than out of truly believing that. But we kind of bought into this idea of if you just iterate you know and you just try enough times eventually and you listen to the customer enough and you have enough of their involvement eventually you'll arrive at the right solution and this was literally the state of the art 15 you know 16 17 years ago for a lot of companies regardless of your your stack or your community and i just started to ask myself is this really working and when i realized it wasn't i started asking myself why And that's what really got me starting to think more broadly about how do systems work in the real world and therefore how do we apply systems thinking to software. So it really wasn't until the late 2000s after I'd already been at it for over a decade that I sort of woke up and said, this is, something's wrong. (laughs) Just coding like hell, like a Roman slave ship is not getting us where we're trying to get. Maybe there's a better way. Yeah,
0: every project goes sideways in the exact same kind of way. So like what's the so what did that look like where does where does someone go to like what was your source to kind of find out how things work in the real world like what sort of systems thinking were you adopting? I'm sure there's a bunch of obvious books, but I never went yeah. down this road
1: you know, I'd start with the questions that you ask, so you start to say things like Everybody wants to accelerate delivery, but then you say, maybe accelerating delivery is the wrong thing. You know, you can't accelerate forever in a finite universe. <laughs> you, 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 you can't go path faster than light speed. You run out of resources. Like, things don't grow forever. Things eventually plateau. So what you have to ask is a different question. How do we make things sustainable? How do we make things maintainable? And so a lot of it came down to, I, know, I can mention a few books. There's a, a wonderful book by Gerald Weinberg called Exploring Requirements. And it's, it's the book for requirements. It's the Bible of requirements. Anybody in product who works with me who hasn't read that book, I get them a copy, I say, you have to read this before we work together. And one of the things he points out is that defects can exist as far back in the process as in your requirements. And the thing about finding a defect in the requirements is it's the least expensive place to discover and fix a defect. The most expensive place is when you've already shipped software. And it can be 10,000 times more expensive. So it was things like that, reading. uh, There's also a lot of books by David Parnas, or really mostly papers, he doesn't have a lot of books. But uh, David Parnas is the person who invented the idea of encapsulation and information hiding. And a lot of listeners may have never heard the name David Parnas before. But back in 1971 or 72, he wrote a paper with a nice long-winded title called On the Criteria to be Used in Decomposing Systems into Modules. <laughs> that sounds great, actually. That's, yeah. It's fantastic. And, what it, and what's ironic is this. He came out with the paper, and it was actually not embraced. There were people who said, we just don't build software that way. And luminaries, who I will not name, but people our listeners have heard of, who haven't heard of David Parnas, said things like this. And it took a few years before people started to realize that actually, if you want to have a good system design, you have to have information hiding and encapsulation. Now the problem is everybody talks about it, but people still don't know how to do it, and they don't know what it actually means. And so it was reading about things like this is, you know, how do real world systems hide information from each other? your cells in your body encapsulate a lot of information. And when they don't, it's actually called a virus. Something's wrong. And then those get constructed into broader systems. You know, your heart is also a system. And the way it communicates with your brain is different than the way it communicates with the rest of your circulatory system, etc., etc., etc. Until you get up to you and I having a conversation out here where we're not speaking electrical impul- impulses and connecting axon, duron, dendrite, myelin sheath and trying to have a conversation because that would be dangerous. Speak for yourself.
0: <laughs> That's what I'm doing.
1: <laughs> That's an integration nightmare. I mean, right. just imagine that. And and so as I started to think these things through and just look at real-world systems and realize, oh, my God, this is how we're building software. We're literally trying to connect the brains of these two systems together. And anytime anything changes, it's a nightmare of complexity to try to figure out how do we Keep moving, so you can do the you know the quick and dirty thing. But you know global variables on the window. That's right, <laughs> and yeah, and nothing's more permanent than a prototype that you ship. No. <laughs> so maybe we should think a little bit more before. So it was it was these kinds of explorations and discovering people like the gentleman I just mentioned that really helped kind of put me on that path.
0: Cool, that's awesome. Yeah. So could we pivot a little bit into the uh, to the extent that you remember it or were involved in the spe- specifics? Uh, the of the sort of the business model aspect of the consultancy. I'm curious because you know this, this the premise of the show is ditching hourly, right? So there's yeah. we we talk about money a lot here um, and how to make a successful either independent freelance developer or a consultant. Um, I, I work with a lot of like CT, fractional CTO types, so yeah. all up and down the spectrum. Um, but back then, you know, what was the Like how much headcount, how big did you get and, and was it an hourly thing or did you go by the project or what was that sort of thinking?
1: We explored with something. So we stayed fairly small and we were actually able to get a lot done with a small team because we were innovating on cloud automation back in the mid to you know late 2000s before. You know, now, a lot of this stuff we kind of take for granted. Things like GitHub Actions or Azure DevOps, they automate a lot of these things for you. But back then we were having to do that ourselves, man. <laughs> but I always believed in you know th- three of my fundamental values of software engineering are automation repeatability and reversibility and i discovered those values by the way i didn't even name those 15 years ago but as i look back at my career i realized that automation repeatability reversibility were just values that i had and so we were trying to do things that now you know you spin up like palumi or terraform and you just you know go to town back then we didn't have those things so we were uh we were doing all of that ourselves so that enabled us to stay small and nimble most of the work we did was hourly and i it's interesting because when you reached out to me and I saw the name of your podcast, I thought, oh, this is so cool because we tried very, very hard to do more project-based, uh, burndown-based, value-delivery-based projects. It was really, really difficult back then. We had very limited success doing it that could have been a factor of a bunch of things. Maybe we didn't sell it well. Maybe we didn't know what we were doing. Maybe the market and the customers that we were trying to cater to just were the wrong fit. But I definitely appreciate the sentiment. And what you just mentioned, too, about things like fractional CEO or, or fractional CTO or things of that nature, I think for me, uh, someday, again, when I return to being an independent contractor, which I think will happen in the next three to 10 years, <laughs> we'll see, uh, I'd be much more interested in working with a company to say how about we determine the value that my contribution will add and then you pay me a percentage of that contribution that would mm-hmm. probably be the way I would approach things going forward as opposed to hourly billing
0: right yeah so for people for people who really know what they're doing and can with some you know reasonably you know you can't guarantee everything but with they can reasonably uh, deliver successful outcomes you know you're confident that you're like oh I can I can at least get on, if I get up to bat, I'm at least gonna hit a double, right? Yeah. Maybe I'll hit a home run, but I can at least hit a double. What's a double worth? You know, so finding, learning the lines and finding the language to have those conversations with clients, um, it, it takes some practice of course, but, but, but yeah, you'd be the ideal kind of person to do it because it's just like the confidence that like, oh, a lot of people are saying things the wrong way. I've got a particular worldview and, and interesting, that list of those three values is very interesting, especially the reversibility one. To me and and being able to say oh you know I've got this particular set of skills I can deliver these kinds of results for companies like this and you know I mean something and and base your prices on the value to them a fraction of the value to them that can be ex- you know for companies that have you know maybe engaged in a big software project that went way past deadline got out of control maybe went double over budget way past deadline and never shipped you know, to, for someone to come along and say, "Look, I, I'm reasonably confident guaranteeing these kinds of outcomes, and it's going to be this much money." Full stop. Yeah. It's very attractive to companies that are risk averse because going back to the the board and saying, "Ah, uh, yeah, uh, I know we said it would only be five hundred thousand, but now we're up to a million, and no end in sight." It's scary for a lot of people.
1: Absolutely, and the challenge is, and this happened a lot even when I was doing this back in the you know late '90s and, and 2000s. A lot of companies had already done it, done it once or twice. You know, like you said, they had already spent the million dollars, and now they're trying to penny pinch. Mm-hmm. And so that was always a challenge as well. And you know, I wasn't nearly as confident 20 years ago as I am now, and that's one of the reasons I mentioned you know a possible future where I return to doing my own individual consultancy is because. A lot of what you're describing requires not just confidence but it requires confidence based in reality. <laughs> it's possible to be highly confident but also incompetent so true but to be truly confident means you also have the you know the chutzpah and the chops to back it up, and that's maybe some people start their careers that way, but I have a feeling most people don't
0: <laughs> hmm. do you yes, I agree so the the line on the website about about making good software professionals great do you think that could be a direction that you go or do you think it would be more like more like fractional cto for some vertical or some size of company
1: yeah i could see it being a bit of both i mean for me a lot of it would would probably be training mentoring teaching things of that nature uh, you know taking systems thinking and helping people to apply it One of the challenges I see in the software industry right now is there's a huge gap between vision and tactics. Somewhere between vision and tactics, you need strategies. And so much software lacks any notion of strategy or any even knowledge of how to do it. And so they'll they'll grasp to things that feel like strategy. And the challenge is when you say this, people will think you're disparaging those things that they're grasping on for strategy. But it's not disparaging to say that it's tactical. I'll give you an example. Domain-driven design, suddenly listeners, I've lost half of them because they think, what, Jeff's going to say something bad about domain-driven design. How dare he say something? No, I'm not going to say anything bad about domain-driven design. What I'm going to say is that domain-driven design is tactical, but it is not strategic. And anyone who thinks it's strategic is going to have a lot of pain. Somewhere you need ways to create strategy, strategic approaches that can help bridge the gap between vision and tactics. That's where systems thinking comes in. And that's where you can take something like domain-driven design and actually make it effective by putting it in the appropriate tactical context rather than trying to view it as a broad strategic framework, which it isn't and was never meant to be.
0: Yeah, you're preaching to the choir here. So I talk about objectives, strategies, and tactics all the time. And so we don't need to go too far down that rabbit hole because you're gonna have a lot of people nodding their
1: heads in the audience, I think.
0: Okay. Yeah. So what? let's pivot again into the the specificity of your vertical that you're in now.
1: Trimble actually has companies in multiple verticals. So there's transportation logistics, there's agriculture, there's mapping and GIS, and then I'm in the construction sector.
0: Okay. And was there something that drew you to that particular, was, you know, it was just like, oh, this is going to be a good job, good opportunity, or is it something specific about the construction sector that appealed to you?
1: It wasn't construction specifically that appealed to me at first. So originally it was, I want to get out of California and move to Portland, Oregon. What's available? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, I'm not going to take just any job. So I'm looking at a few jobs, software architecture related jobs, uh, some senior engineer jobs. But I was kind of past that. I was looking for something more, uh, you know, leadership oriented and design oriented And what I discovered when I found this open job was that there was a lot of overlap between construction and agriculture in a few ways. So they're trying to solve a lot of similar problems. They're both very underserved markets for technology, and they both have a lot of the canonical problems of business software, which very often pertain to what you could call generally workflow. And the trouble with most software these days is they don't have any idea what I just said, Or if they do, they're trying to use tools and technologies, workflow tools and technologies. And now you're jumping to tactics again. What the strategic approach says is, what does it mean to design systems where workflow is a fundamental part of how the system works? Because too often what happens is people create these HTTP JSON APIs that they call REST. Go read Roy Fielding's thesis. It's not REST, but whatever, I digress. And then they give these you know, APIs with 500 endpoints to some poor front-end development team populated with junior developers who are spending most of their time figuring out whether it should be Angular, React, Vue, or Svelte, and which version, God help us, and there's a new JavaScript framework every five seconds. And all the complex logic around business process is in the front end, built by junior developers who would rather figure out the best, you know, compiler tool for you know linting their front-end it's not even compiling it's linting but you're right there you know they'd rather fiddle around with tool chains and these kinds of things and and front-end frameworks so one of the missing links strategically in the industry is is this so back to what you asked is what drew me to it as i realized there's a lot of similarities between ag tech and construction and various other industries and what really needs to happen is somebody needs to come up with a vision for how do you design systems that can handle complex business processes and get that out of the hands of the front end, where it's the last place you want to be doing complex business logic.
0: Mm, yes. So maybe to wrap up, because I know we're coming up to time. What was there anything that you can point to? So let's say that let's say there are a bunch of really experienced devs, like lead dev, senior dev types in the audience, who are feeling like they're getting a little bored with it, honestly, and they they have seen a lot of what they they see problems like the ones that you're articulating and but they don't really have a seat at the table to do anything about it because they're upstream of the work that lands on their desk so maybe maybe sort of that path to architect or cto what does that look like was there any was there anything maybe a book or something transformative that you encountered that either helped you make that transition or was it just a hard one, you know, real world experience?
1: It was a combination of both, but a huge, huge catalyst for me in my career was when I discovered a company called iDesign. So it's iDesign.net, nothing to do with Apple. In fact, it was called that way before Apple put an i in front of everything. And uh, the gentleman who started that company actually just published a book a few years ago called Writing Software. And it's not writing as in writing a book. It's writing as in setting right. R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G software. So writingsoftware.org and listeners can find the book. And then that company also does a lot of training in how do you do system design. And then once you've designed a system, now what you can also do is you can take that to design a project. And now you can actually come up with pretty accurate estimates. And people say, oh, nobody can estimate software. Well, you know what? We've been estimating construction projects for 50 years and we're doing a pretty darn good job at it. And the real irony is the estimation techniques used in construction, it's something called critical path theory, was actually originally created for the software industry. And we moved past it and gave up on it and the construction industry has had great success. So there's that. Um, And then another book that I would recommend to listeners is one that just came out recently and it's called Lean Software Systems Engineering for Developers. A couple of gentlemen in Nebraska who have been practicing a lot of what I've just been saying, and I just discovered them recently. I didn't even know they existed, and I didn't know they had a book. Wonderful book on hard engineering skills and the soft skills. And that's, I think, the real trick, is for people who maybe feel bored or stuck, the only way to really get this done is you gotta either find people who have the soft skills who can speak on your behalf, or you have to learn the soft skills to be able to communicate to the business people, what I call the suits so that they will actually stand up and take notice.
0: <laughs> yes. I could not agree more. In fact, I think, I think when I was back, when I was doing it, I was an okay developer, but, but I was great at translating between the suits and the devs. So that was a strong point. That was a strong point. And it's ext- and to the listener. It's extremely valuable. I mean, I remember before when I was a developer, and I, I would imagine some someone like me that I would encounter, like a McKinsey guy, came into one of my, you know, my my only enterprise uh, job I ever had, and came in and was just like, oh, he doesn't, but he doesn't do anything. He doesn't actually do anything. He just like tells everyone else what to do, or you know, analyzes the problem. But I was actually at the same time though, I was pretty impressed with this particular fellow who's like really quick. He like really picked up on what we were talking about. Like I thought our problem was so special. And he had seen it a million times before already. He's like, so what you're saying is you don't have unique identifiers for your records. And I was like,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: That's a good way to put it. So on the one hand, I felt like this guy doesn't type semicolons, so he doesn't do anything. But I was also impressed with his ability to comprehend what I thought was an incredibly convoluted specific problem. And it completely wasn't. And so so I can imagine that there... And then later I ended up doing a job very much like that guy. And I, And I know... I'm sure there are a lot of engineering types or people who are in this scenario where they're a little bit stuck or bored of what they're doing they see younger developers coming along every day who are happy to work for pizza and computers uh, undercutting them and getting the gigs and wondering what they're going to do next they're feeling like a dinosaur and and you know maybe i should just go start a farm you know go finally do that but i don't i don't think you need to do that i think the approach is something i talk about is increasing your altitude of involvement which would be moving up from say lead dev or senior dev to I don't know, maybe you go up a VPE path and you're you're sort of manager and sort of um, leading the developers and and helping them in that way or maybe a more technical direction like software architect cto that kind of thing and yeah, and I, I think to discount that i'm sort of I'm sort of imagining the objections in the audience to discount that because those people are just managers, they don't do anything, air quotes, is a big mistake because there's a massive amount of
1: value there, just like Jeff's describing. And I would say along those lines, what I was talking before about the strategic middle, I think learning systems thinking, and there's so much more, you can read books by by Forster and, um, and Danella Matthews about anything you get your hands on about systems thinking, just start doing it and then start, start doing it as a hobby, start looking around yourself and and start to seeing systems everywhere, and then you can start to figure out how to apply this as software. And I'd say, too, for people who are maybe feeling stuck, you know, to me, fundamentally, humans thrive when they're creating value, especially when they're creating sustainable value. And in the software industry, in my experience, I've seen kind of this this competing war from two ends of a spectrum. One is what I'll call the storytelling end of the spectrum, and the other is the problem-solving end of the spectrum. And at the extremes, you have wonks and geeks, is one way of looking at it. So. If they go too far out down the spectrum they almost become useless at one end of the spectrum you have a storyteller who's story, who's telling bs stories that are essentially not based in reality or truth and no and everybody sees right through them okay that that's the extreme wonk. at the other end of the spectrum you have a geek who's solving problems that nobody cares about you know well i made this amazing shell script that does that and everybody's like so what nobody cares is it actually helping anybody right and and what i've spent and what i've realized is the more you can bring people to the middle the more they move up it's almost like a triangle think ver, value creations at the top one side is storytelling one side is problem solving but as you come closer to the middle you actually start moving up closer to value creation And so what I've spent a lot of time doing over the last 15 years, as you've mentioned, my my whole life mission is helping make good software professionals great, is to help them first realize that they're never gonna have meaning in life if they don't discover and pursue their unique value creation potential. Now, not every problem solver is gonna be a great storyteller. And not every storyteller is gonna be a great detailed problem solver. But they can start to move toward the middle. And then you reach a point where you say, you know what? I'm probably better off being a problem solver, but what I need is a storyteller who can either bring me better refinement to the problems I'm solving, or who can better articulate the nature of the problems I'm solving to people who need to buy into what I'm selling. And vice versa, you need storytellers who value the people who are solving the real problems and don't just think that they're developers in a dark hole that just need you know Diet Coke and pizza to go under the wall and outcomes code.
0: Yeah. So is your your implication there partnering with someone who fills that gap?
1: It's a bit of both, right? I think every person who's a problem solver needs to do some soul searching and say, how can I become a better storyteller? Every single one of them. You're just going to hit diminishing returns for most people. Same thing with the storyteller. We don't need every storyteller to learn how to program there's diminishing returns. But like you mentioned before, you had that person who at first seemed like an empty suit, but then they knew enough to say you're struggling with something as detailed as a lack of a uniqueness constraint. Maybe they don't know how to implement that, but they understand that that's the general solution to the problem. And so some people will find, as I think I've discovered more and more people lately, especially many of them are podcast hosts, such as yourself, where they kind of are in the middle. They're really good at both. And those do exist. But I'm not saying everybody has to be equally proficient at both. What I'm saying is spend some time getting better at the thing you're not as attuned to, but then you're going to reach a point too where you're also going to benefit by finding somebody who is far superior in that area and partnering with them. Hmm. Great.
0: A lot of great stuff there. Jeff, where can people go to find out more about what you're doing?
1: Well, they can go to jeffdoolittle.com. So that's Doolittle with two O's, unlike the infamous fictional doctor. So J-E-F-F-D-O-O-L-I-T-T-L-E.com. And they can find me on Twitter, Jeff Doolittle, LinkedIn, Jeff Doolittle, all the all things, th- and GitHub, Jeff Doolittle. So yeah, try to keep it consistent and simple. <laughs> Excellent.
0: Great, well, I'll add links to the show notes. So if people are interested, they can click right through. But thanks again for joining me, Jeff.
1: Yeah, it's great talking to you.
0: All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I hope you join me again next time for Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call, you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com call. Hope to see you there.